Luke chapter 16, beginning in verse 19. This is what God's word says. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue. For I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, Neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we ask that you would give us ears to hear your word. The word which you have written for us for all time. We ask that your spirit would apply that to our hearts communicate to our souls the very truth that is here and that you would help us to receive it by faith. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. About 3,000 years ago, King Solomon of Israel, writing under the superintendence of the Holy Spirit, he wrote these words of divine wisdom in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11, which says this, that God has put eternity into man's heart. That is to say that every human being has within his heart this innate affinity, even assumption of a continued existence beyond the grave. Because we were made for eternity. That's fact. We were made for eternity by our eternal creator and for our eternal creator to be in his presence forever. To put it another way, every human being knows deep inside, deep inside, that after we die, the notion that we are simply annihilated and from that point on cease to exist is simply inconceivable and irrational. Uh, The dead giveaway is that everyone talks about resting in peace, RIP, but you can't rest, you can't enjoy peace if you don't exist. And we can't help but assume our continued consciousness beyond 
this life on earth after death. And you might say, well, what about the nihilist who, who claims to believe in nothing? Well, the nihilist is simply just being dishonest with himself. Because if there is nothing after death, and you no longer exist thereafter, then that must mean that whatever came before death is also nothing. Because it's all nullified in meaning anyway. I mean, why exist at all then? Why live at all? Why do anything meaningful in life when the meaning of your existence will eventually be eradicated as if you never existed in the first place? You see, the truth is inescapable. You and I are made for eternity and we know it. Uh, There is more yet to come after this life. And the reason the, the nihilist claims to believe in nothing is because truth be told, he is afraid of the unknown. So afraid that he'd rather pretend to know that there is nothing. But friends, God has made it known to us through his word. Uh, Through this parable, Jesus peels back the curtains of eternity to show us very plainly that we are created by God as reasonable and immortal souls. We're all immortal in this respect, meaning we are all heading to eternity. And the only question is where and how we will spend our eternity on the other side of the grave. Enjoying eternal life in the presence of God or experiencing eternal death separated from God. And this is the ultimate fork in the road. And no other fork of destiny matters in comparison to our eternal fate because life on earth is so brief and so temporary in the big scheme of things. Whereas what happens after death is everlasting. It is permanent, sealed forever. And so this parable shows it doesn't really matter in the end, all the glories and riches and honor and pleasures or, or success, uh, achievements that one accumulates during his life on earth. Because the only thing that matters is if you belong to God with a true and living faith, whether or not you have tr- entrusted the entirety of your soul into his merciful, loving, and eternally secure hands. Now off the bat, at cursory glance of this parable, It would appear as if this is some blanket judgment of the damnation of rich people for being rich and the salvation of poor people for being poor. But, of course, that would be to contradict the whole rest of Scripture, which tells us plainly that no one is saved by riches or by poverty. No one enters into the kingdom of heaven through good works or bad or on the basis of his socioeconomic status, his reputation, his legacy, or anything to do with himself. But sinners are saved solely by trusting in the grace of God, the free gift of salvation in Jesus Christ, all that he is and all that he has done for sinners. And actually, that's kind of the whole point of this comparison between the rich man and Lazarus. Because here we have a portrait of two people whose lives on earth couldn't have been further apart And just simply by appearance, it would seem that this rich man who had everything, he would continue to have everything. And then Lazarus, who had nothing, would continue to have nothing. See, one was filthy rich, had everything this world could offer, while the other was deprived of everything from this life. It was a miserable life of poverty, sickness, and loneliness. He had nothing on earth. 
but he ended up with everything in the next life. Whereas the rich man had everything on earth, but he ended up with nothing in eternity. He was found as a beggar in the misery of eternal torment. You see, this parable is intentionally setting forth a a juxtaposition of two extremes to show that even in such extreme cases, there is this shocking ultimate reversal. So as to make the point that you could have everything in this life, but if you do not have Christ, you have nothing. And even if you were to have nothing in this life, if you have Christ, you have everything. That was the key difference between these two men. Not ultimately their net worth or lack thereof, but it was the matter of genuine faith in God. Because let's consider the profile first of this rich man. Again, his wealth was not in and of itself the problem. Abraham was a rich man, but he trusted God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Joseph, the son of Jacob, was made rich and powerful in Egypt, but he feared God and he lived to obey God's will. And so being rich is not in and of itself a condemnation, any more than being poor is in and of itself a commendation. Proverbs has much to say about the folly and wickedness of poverty, which stems from laziness and slothfulness. Proverbs 28, 19, whoever works his land will have plenty of bread, but he who follows worthless pursuits will have plenty of poverty. And so again, the point of issue must not be this rich man's financial condition, but his spiritual condition. It's not the fact that he had or made a lot of money, but it's how he viewed his money and what he did with it. And ultimately the heart from which all of those things stemmed. Verse 19, it says, There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen. A purple dye was the rarest and most exclusive material, which is why it was often uh, worn by royalty. And, and linen, which was used for the undergarment, this man, he was so full of himself, even his underwear had to be the finest of linen. See, the indictment here is not his fashion choice, but that he being filthy rich, he lived to flaunt his riches. He gloried in his wealth. He was a man who boasted in his earthly riches. This was his security and delight of his soul. He wanted everyone to know that he had made it. That he was a man of success and importance. It was a heart problem at the core of it. He loved himself. He lived for himself. And this is punctuated by this phrase that he feasted sumptuously every day. This is not just referring to his eating. But, but this phrase could be rendered, he engorged himself extravagantly every day with everything. Food, entertainment, luxuries, everything. I mean, the point is that this man's entire way of living, his mindset, was governed by the principle of living to please himself. You don't have to be rich to do that. You just have to be fallen in sin to do that, which is all of us. I mean, this is what life was about for him. He lived for this life only. He was a worldly man. But notice also that he appears to be quite the religious man. How do we know? Because later in eternity, he calls out to Abraham and he addresses him in verse 24. Father Abraham which means that he was a good Jewish man. 
a physical descendant of Abraham. He went to synagogue each week in accordance with his religious heritage. But as Jesus said earlier to the Pharisees in verse 15, God knows your hearts. What is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. God knew this rich man's heart. Though outwardly religious, he was inside in love with this world. He bowed down to the idols of money, worldly security, self-sufficiency, and self-absorption. So self-absorbed, in fact, that although Lazarus lay at his gate, at his front door, he was too preoccupied with himself to bat an eye. And we know that he knew Lazarus while on earth because, again, later in eternity, he asks Abraham to send Lazarus. He knows to refer to Lazarus personally by name. And yet the rich man lived all for himself, governed by his carnal instincts, indulging fully in his fallen nature of self-absorption and self-centeredness. Simply put, to sum up his profile, this rich man was a religious man who deep inside lived as his own master and lord. That's a very common thing. Forget about the riches. Forget about his net worth. There are many such people to be found in the doors of the church each week who, who pay lip service to God every Sunday but refuse to be governed by God's word because they love living for themselves just like this rich man. He was enslaved to himself. He was spiritually dead. And so his callousness toward others, his lack of compassion, his greed, they were all just symptoms of his empty dead religion. He was devoid of the love of God in his heart. No appetite for the heavenly glories of knowing God and delighting in him because he had engorged himself full with worldly things. This was the rich man's spiritual condition. Again, don't be distracted by the extreme outward extravagance. His inner heart is common to every unsaved man or woman. Simply living for yourself. Doing what's right in your own eyes. No real desire to live under God's perfect and loving authority. And if this is you, in the honesty of your inner thoughts and motives which God sees... You must understand that you are in no different a position than this rich man because the heart is the same and the heart is what God sees. But in contrast to this rich man, here was Lazarus who lay pitifully at the man's gates. He was probably disabled to some degree, which is why it describes him in such a way that he lay there. And verse 20 says that on top of that, Lazarus was covered with sores all over his body. He lived a life of miserable ailment. And he was so starved that he longed to eat even the crumbs that fell off the rich man's table to get even a lick of flavor on his tongue. And who knows if he got any. But all we know is that dogs were coming to lick his sores. Now look, this is not the warm, fuzzy picture you're imagining. Okay, These weren't golden retrievers. But these were wild dogs. Hungry, unclean animals possibly looking at Lazarus because he seemed to them nearly good enough to be a carcass. Now that's all we're told of Lazarus's circumstance of life. Well, then what can we gather about his spiritual condition? 
Well, we've already determined that it is not poverty or sickness that saves you into God's kingdom any more than riches or good health does. But from what we can tell, Lazarus was carried into eternal life with God because during his life on earth, he had put his trust in the promises of God. How do we know this? Because first of all, verse 22 says that Lazarus died and was carried by the angels Where? Could have just said heaven to God, but specifically mentions Abraham's side. And this implies everything. We have to ask, well, why is Abraham mentioned to describe entering to heaven? He's not God. Abraham's not the Savior. But it's because Abraham is the epitome, the representation of saving faith. He is the spiritual patriarch of all who put their trust in the promise of God's undeserved grace. That's what Abraham did in Genesis 12, Genesis 15. And so to be at Abraham's side is to mean that you are like Abraham, that you are a true child of Abraham, not by flesh as as the rich man was, merely a physical descendant, which means nothing, but by faith as a spiritual descendant. As Paul says in Galatians 3, 7, know this, that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And this was Lazarus. He entrusted himself to God. And think think this, what, what a precious thing to behold. That despite his miserable circumstances, rather than being angry and bitter against God, Lazarus, trusted God through the pain through the suffering through the sorrows he evidently lived his life trusting God's eternal goodness and grace even though he couldn't understand though he had been given a thousand reasons by the devil to despise God and to blame God Lazarus through the eyes of faith looked beyond himself, looked beyond his circumstance, and rested his weary soul into the hands of the only one he believed could be his help and rest and ultimate deliverance. In fact, the name Lazarus is kind of significant. And we know this because in no other parable Jesus tells is a name given to any of the people involved. But only here, Lazarus, Mentioned by name. Even the rich man doesn't have a name, but Lazarus has a name. Why? Because the name Lazarus is short for Eliezer. You probably recognize that name in the Old Testament. And what Eliezer means is this. God helps. God helps. And Lazarus lived up to his namesake. It was not his poverty by which he was saved, but it was his humility and genuine trust and the eternal promise of God, taking him at his word, that trusting that somehow in the end, he will make all things right, and the help of God will be shown and realized and vindicated, and that he will comfort Lazarus with his gracious presence. Friends, this is the gospel of God's salvation in a nutshell. You want to understand the gospel simply? It's this. You may have heard This saying, God helps those who help themselves. That 
is the biggest pile of garbage that has ever masqueraded as biblical truth. Because the gospel, the whole message of the Bible, is the polar opposite of that saying. It is that God helps those who cannot help themselves. But those who realize and confess that they are helpless. And so they look to God for supernatural help and deliverance. That's what repentance and faith is in layman's terms. Sinners are saved when they realize that they have rebelled against God and incurred His righteous judgment. And we have all fallen in sin and taken the life that He has given us and used it, wasted it on resisting His perfect and loving authority and living for ourselves, asserting ourselves over Him as our own God over our lives. And as guilty sinners, we deserve the justice of His eternal judgment. And nothing we do can make amends For our sinfulness. Because God is perfect in holiness. And so to be in his presence. You must be perfectly holy. As he is holy. And this means that we are all by nature as sinners. Hopelessly. Condemned. You see as sinners. Our true spiritual condition. Is that we are helpless. Rightfully doomed. Unto eternal judgment. But this is the gospel, the good news of God's mercy and undeserved love for sinners. That God has come to help the helpless. Even the helpless who have offended Him. And He has done that by sending His Son, Jesus Christ, to take the place of sinners. And go to the cross to take upon himself the full weight of God's judgment on behalf of those he came to save. He paid for sin unto death on a cross and rose from the dead on the third day to call helpless sinners to look to him. Trust in what he has done. And by faith in him and his work of salvation on the cross, that work is transferred and applied to them, the complete forgiveness of sin and being reconciled to God for all eternity. You see, Jesus Christ is the very incarnation of God's help and mercy, His gracious deliverance. And that is what Lazarus trusted in with his life, God's help for the helpless. And this is why Jesus always talked about how difficult it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. It's not because of the riches in and of itself. But it's because rich men tend to be self-sufficient. They feel that they have everything they need in themselves. But by contrast, it is easier for a man like Lazarus to heed the call of the gospel, to surrender himself and embrace the promises of Christ. Because he already counts his life as worth nothing. It is easier for a man who has nothing in this world to long for the hope of the next world, to hunger for the glory of God's presence in heaven. It is easier for such a man to genuinely want eternity with Christ more than life on earth. But it is much harder for self-sufficient men and women who feel that they have everything already, to have any genuine interest in the promises of Christ. Because all of their riches and success and worldly security and fulfillment serve to mask their true spiritual condition, that they are in fact 
spiritually bankrupt sinners before God. Notice what happens as both men come to the end of their lives on earth. Death is a great equalizer, isn't it? Verse 22, the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. And the rich man also died just the same and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Despite how exalted the rich man had been among men during his life on earth, despite being so incomparably different from Lazarus, who lay at his doorstep as a beggar, here on the other side of eternity, the rich man now finds himself eternally as a miserable beggar. Because that is, in fact, who he really is. Because he entered into eternity without God's help and grace. He insisted on remaining autonomous, self-governing, self-righteous, independent of God. And so he stepped into the realm of eternity without Christ, without an advocate and savior and when his eyes opened for the first time on the other side of the grave he found himself in the torment of hades now hades is just a greek word for death referring to the realm of the dead jesus here isn't referring to greek mythology he's just using greek vocabulary and it's the context here that clearly tells us that this hades that the rich man found himself in was not some Cemetery, or was not some myth, but it was the realm of eternal death and torment. Whereas Lazarus was far off above in the paradise of eternal life and comfort. Again, you and I have been created by God as immortal souls to exist forever. The question is where and how we will spend that forever heaven with God or heaven or hell away from God. And notice here uh, through the rich man's experience that hell is not just some place where the ac is broken somewhere that's a little bit unpleasant or unenjoyable no plain and clear jesus reveals and the rich man would testify to us that hell is the place of eternal conscious unbearable torment yet that which he must bear for eternity where you wish you could die once for all and terminate your misery but you exist forever to experience unending separation and sensation of death and suffering. The rich man calls out in verse 24, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to just dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in in this flame. How horrible must it be that he begs for two seconds of relief? It is the everlasting flame of God's righteous wrath. But it is an unquenchable flame. And those who are in it wish to be burned up into ashes and have it be done with. But they can't. They suffer unendingly. Now let's ask the all-important question. One I assume that some of you are already asking in your head. Why? 
Would a good, loving God send sinners to hell? Why would a good God do something like that? Well, first of all, it's for the same reason that a good judge who loves his people, who loves and cares about the citizens around him over his jurisdiction, that a good judge is faithful to send criminals to prison. And it's the bad and evil and corrupt judge who lets them go free. And so perhaps this question begs the more underlying question, do we ask this question assuming that we are not sinners? Is the presupposition that we are not guilty? Do we fail to understand the unspeakable and atrocious crime of rebelling against God who is the perfection of good? It is because God is good that he must punish evildoers. Sinners like you and me, we all deserve it. But let's make the question more difficult. Why would a good and loving God send sinners to a punishment that is so horrific as hell? Why must it be such torment? And endless agony. Why is hell so dark and horrible? Friends, listen closely. It's because the horror of hell is the logical conclusion of being given over fully to your sinful desires, of wanting separation from God. Hell is what sinners actually want deep inside, but they just don't realize it, nor its consequences. Because hell is precisely what unrepentant sinners live their lives seeking. That is, for God to get out of the way, to run away from His presence, to be unshackled from Him, as it were, to be liberated from Him, to be freed from having to submit to His authority. In other words, hell is getting exactly what sinners want. To be cut off from God forever. And that is why hell is so horrific. Because the problem is that it is in God's presence alone that there is the fullness of joy. Psalm 1611, which means that away from him, cut off from him, is to be finally and eternally cut off from joy from life, from peace. It is to be in the sheer absence of joy. God is the fountain of eternal life and being, Acts 17.25. And so to be cast out of His presence is to be eternally drowning in death. Hell is so miserable and dark because God is light. And in him is no darkness at all, 1 John 1, 5. And so to depart from the light of his glory and beauty is to be cast out into the outer darkness. Friends, you see, hell's misery actually points us to the true glory of God's presence. And yet it also reveals to us the destructive deception of sin. In in promising us falsely, in making us believe that we should find joy and fulfillment outside of God, only to lure us down to hell. 
And so people ask, why would a good, loving God send sinners to hell? But listen, this good and loving God sent his son to the sinful world to rescue us from hell. Jesus came to go to the cross on which he took upon himself, upon his perfect sinless self, the hell of God's wrath and anger meant for us, owed to us. And this is the goodness and love of God for helpless sinners. So the better question is, why do sinners keep rejecting the love and mercy of God through Jesus Christ? Why do they insist on remaining in their sin and going to hell? Friend, are you here today without Christ? If so, do you understand that if you were to die today or even die later, yet without Christ as you are, that this rich man will be you? I mean, does that register in your soul? Why do you insist on remaining unforgiven in your sins? Why do you wager your precious soul on the empty promise of this temporal world only to waste it into eternal ruin? Come to Jesus Christ. Receive the free gift of His salvation. Embrace His mercy. This is of the greatest urgency because eternity is irreversible once you get there. Look in verse 25, as the rich man begs for Lazarus to be sent, but Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. Now the good things and bad things here, he's not talking about karma or he's talking about, oh, you used up all your luck and there's no, not enough luck left for the rest of eternity. No, but it's that the rich man lived for this world only. He sought all of his happiness and good here, whereas Lazarus lived to set his hope on the life to come. And verse 26, and besides all this, Abraham continues, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. Your eternal fate, once you arrive, is sealed forever. It is final and irreversible. Friend, would you really gamble your soul away for just this life? And if in hearing this, you are still adamant that you'd rather remain living in rebellion against God, then let me plead with you further from the text in verse 27. As the rich man pleads, then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, to my family. For I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. Look here. The eternal regret of all those who are in hell right now. This rich man who lived with such pomp and arrogance and self-confidence, who gloried in his power, his fame, all of his resources, he now warns in anguish, please don't come here. I rejected the grace of God. Do whatever you can to not make the same mistake. Friend, if you will not listen to the voice of heaven calling you to come to Christ, 
then at the very least, listen to the cries of hell telling you to not come down here. And of course, every skeptic gives the same retort. Well, if God shows up, maybe if he tells me, speaks to me, you know, if he does some miracle, maybe then I'll believe him. But that's nothing new. The rich man in hell, he thought to suggest the same thing. And he even actually suggested that in earnest, with sincerity. Verse 29, but Abraham said, well, they have Moses and the prophets, the law and the prophets. This was the Jewish way of referring to the Bible. So they have the Bible. Let them listen to the Bible, to God's word. Lazarus said, verse 30, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. If someone rises from the dead and says, Hey, hey, I just, I just came from the dead. Look, this is what it's like. Please listen. Then they will listen. Then for sure they'll be convinced. But verse 31, Abraham said, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, if they do not listen to God's word, Neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Nothing will convince them if they refuse the word of God. Why does Abraham say that? Because from our vantage point today, a dead man has already come back to life to testify to us of the reality of heaven and hell. His name is Jesus. And the whole point of the Bible, particularly the New Testament, is the historic, indisputable eyewitness testimony of Jesus' death and resurrection. Recorded and preserved for all generations so that by its truth, God might continue to save sinners unto himself. Jesus rose from the dead. That is fact. You understand? It really happened 2,000 years ago. A historic event. The resurrection of Jesus is God's final, all-sufficient sign, his signature, that the gospel is true, that the whole Bible is true. The evidence is insurmountable. I don't have time to get into all of it. We could talk about it after service if you want. For the past 2,000 years and counting, many people confronted with that evidence have desperately tried to explain it away. But they can't. But why do they do that? Why do they try to explain it away? Because they know deep inside that if Jesus really rose from the dead, then everything in the Bible is true. And it demands the entirety of their soul, which they're not willing to give up and entrust to the one who so loves sinners that he went down to death for them and conquered the grave with risen power that they might put their trust in him. Look, if you're here today and you do not believe God's word about heaven and hell, you do realize that it takes just as much faith for you to believe whatever you believe about the afterlife as it does for the Christian to believe what the Bible says about it. Everyone has faith. Everyone must exercise faith to believe whatever they believe comes after death, even if they believe in nothing. 
Because the non-Christian and the Christian alike, neither of you, have died yet and seen it for yourself. And everyone that has died can't come back to tell you about it. Except one man who went to death and came back to life to tell us the truth and most importantly, to tell us and to show us that he can be trusted with our lives, with our death, with our eternity. Don't put your trust in yourself. Put your trust in Jesus, the risen Savior, who is himself the hope of eternal life for sinners. Let me close with a word to all the Christians here, to all who belong to Christ by faith. The life and testimony of Lazarus here in this parable is a great encouragement to us. Because through him, we see that the circumstances of our lives are no indication or impingement whatsoever on God's eternal love set upon us in Christ and his great pleasure to carry us to the end into the comfort of his presence. Lazarus's life shows that everything on earth could be falling apart. Trials and tribulations and suffering may be laying siege upon you. But for all who are in Christ, their status as the true offspring of Abraham and child of heaven is unshakable. This, for the Christian, is what is irreversibly sealed forever. And the day is coming when you close your eyes last on earth. And upon your last breath, the Lord will send his angels to carry you to himself. God is especially with each and every believer at the hour of their death. He will send his angels to carry you to himself and you will awaken to behold the beauty of an eternal world, perfect in holiness, in the presence of your Holy Father. And so Christian, while you toil and struggle in this life on earth in following Christ, do not lose heart. Stay the course of faithfulness to Christ. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. And this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Let's pray together. Gracious God and Father, thank you for the gospel of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by his life and death and resurrection, he has given to us our help, our deliverance, our rescue. Thank you for intervening in this sinful, lost, God-forsaken world. Thank you for saving your people 
though we are so undeserving, though we are ill-deserving, deserving of hell and judgment, we're so grateful that Christ has given of himself for us, that in him we have life and only life and life forevermore. Father, I pray that if there are here, those here who do not yet know you, that you would be gracious to open their eyes, not only to the horrors of hell, but to the sweetness of heaven with Christ, that you would draw them to yourself. And Lord, we thank you for giving to us the precious gift of the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, by which you communicate to us and reaffirm to us the seal of our salvation through the these ordinary elements of the bread and the cup. And we ask that you would set these apart to remind us and confirm to us the salvation we have in Christ, the hope of heaven, and to abide in his love. We ask this in his name. Amen.